if you ask me today, on the Israeli side, if we don't change the government of Netanyahu, I don't think that we can really have negotiations on peace with the Palestinian side. So the longer it goes on, the longer it goes on, Mr. Balin, the more frustration uh, on the Palestinian side and on and the less trust on the Israeli side, all you seem to do is to strengthen the, the far right, the extremists, and it makes peace even more difficult to even discuss. And this is why you need ideas, maybe new ideas, and you need the world to be involved. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis. I was based as a correspondent in Jerusalem for more than a decade. And during that time, the Israelis and Palestinians began a meaningful peace process. What a world away from where they are now. The Oslo Accords in 1993 meant that Israel would leave areas in the West Bank and Gaza, and eventually this process would lead to a Palestinian state. Israeli leader Yitzhak Rabin said that living in peace with a Palestinian state was the only way to secure Israel's future, because what's the alternative? The Israeli opposition leader, a guy named Benjamin Netanyahu, the same Netanyahu who became prime minister, led a huge campaign against the Oslo Accords. He fed and to some degree rode a wave of far right-wing hatred towards Rabin and the peace process. Benjamin Netanyahu was the star speaker, by the way, at two now infamous demonstrations where the crowd's slogans included death to Rabin. In July 1995, Netanyahu walked at the head of a mock funeral procession featuring a fake black coffin. Because the right-wing settler movement and ultra-religious Jews somehow see a religious territory of Israel as bigger than the modern state of Israel, they think that denying Palestinians a homeland and expanding the geographic boundaries of Israel is somehow messianic. And Rabin, they said, was Dean Rodef, a threat to Jewish lives. And that's how Rabin's assassin justified shooting Rabin in the back at a peace rally in Tel Aviv in 1995. And since then, what do we have? Netanyahu has killed the peace process and strengthened extremist Palestinians, chiefly Hamas, which controls Gaza. And secular Israelis and Palestinians, moderates, and by the way, they're the majority, have very little voice. Is there a peace camp left? Well, no one knows better than the architect and chief negotiator of the Oslo Accords, Yossi Balin. And on this backstory, you can believe what you want, but I actually think eventually Israel and the Palestinians have to settle this and push the extremists on both sides out of the discussion, rejecting hate and violence. All right, joining me now from Tel Aviv is Yossi Balin, a former government minister, a member of the Israeli Knesset, or parliament, uh, he was one of the principal architects of the Oslo Peace Accords, uh, and he joins me now. Hi, Mr. Balin. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to see you again, because I interviewed you many times in the, in the 1990s, uh, when I was a correspondent based in Jerusalem with Canadian television, um, and you, you always had a, a very eloquent, and I thought, clear view of the road ahead in terms of being able to uh, have a two-state solution with Palestinians. But first of all, let me ask you, um, we have had this horrendous couple of weeks uh, with rocket attacks from Gaza and Israel's response and also violence on the Temple Mount. What is your assessment of what is happening now? Are, are we on a, uh, a, a circle of violence that just continues to repeat itself, or is this a very different chapter? Well, it's hard to know. I hope that this is not the case, that it was an eruption of violence as a result of the tensions which are there, which have been there for years. From time to time, there is such an eruption and then the world intervenes and say, hey, kids, 
in the kindergarten, stop it, why should you hit each other? And then they say, no, we have to hit a little bit more in order to achieve our targets. God knows what are the targets. And then they stop for a while. If there is no peace process, then things like that may continue. And it doesn't have to be a, a, a catastrophic uh, development uh, after which there is no way to get back to the to any process. Uh, but it is a it is a kind of a setback for sure. It is a kind of a of a setback. It seems to me that look, there has been violence on Temple Mount before. There has been violence in Gaza. Um, but every time it seems to progress and it seems to, in my view, the violence seems to get worse. I mean, look at the 3,000 rockets and more this time. Uh, can this just continue on? Because long term, is it not a long term threat to Israel's security that's just not going to go away and it's going to increase? Yeah. If, if you ask me whether it can go on, regretfully, the answer is not negative. It can go on, but why, but why should it? I mean, this round is less lethal than the previous one. If you count the, the uh, killed, the, the, the death toll on both sides. But this is, this is not the case. I mean, what is happening is that we are having two, two Palestinian entities one is in the West Bank and another is in Gaza. And the problem is that the, the entity of Hamas in Gaza is not demanding anything politically. They don't need, they don't say, no, we, we want to have a government or we, we want to have a, a, a embass, embassies in the world or, or whatever. They don't want anything. They said, you Jews get out. Which was, by the way, the, the view of the Palestinians 100 years ago. And they changed their mind during the years. Hamas didn't change its mind. And you don't know what to do with them. I mean, I don't know what to do with them. If I personally want to talk with, with them, with some of them, to know better what do they really want, what are their aims, they are not ready to talk to me. I'm, I'm their nemesis because I want peace. I want partition of the land. And then they, of course, are not ready for any partition because the, the land, the, the holy land is a waqf. And they're not ready to, to partition the land with another people. So they believe that with violence, with terrorism, whatever, they will be able to push us out of the land, of course, it is childish. But this was, but at the same time, Israel has its very far right, as as the yeah, Palestinians sure. do, and they want to push Palestinians out of the land. They want to take more no, settlements. No. Sorry, I, I'm not sure about that. What it is true that you don't have now a partner in Israel. It is true that the the leadership in Israel in the last years was not ready to partition the land. And this is the litmus test. All the time, this is the question. Are you ready to, to share the land or not? And once Israel was not against it, then of course, Israel was not a, a partner. Once the Palestinians were against it, until 88, actually, they were not a real partner. In 88, the Palestinians changed their mind about it. And in 93, Israel changed its mind. That was that what happened. But the Hamas came up and said to the other moderate Palestinians, what are you doing? You are desecrating our, our land, our holy land. And we will do whatever in order to prevent it from happening. And on the Israeli side, the far right, or the not necessarily only the far right, was totally against the Oslo Agreement, was totally against partition and did whatever it could in order to prevent it. The, the, this brought to a, a very, very uh, tough uh, confrontation. And if you ask me today, on the Israeli side, if we don't change the government of Netanyahu, 
I don't think that we can really have negotiations on peace with the Palestinian side. So the longer it But, goes on, the longer it goes on, Mr. Balin, the more the 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 more frustration uh, on the Palestinian side and on and the less trust on the Israeli side. All you seem to do is to strengthen the the far right, the extremists, and it makes peace even more difficult to even discuss. And this is why you need ideas, maybe new ideas, and you need the world to be involved. And that happened in the past. I mean, the, uh, if, if you ask me whether there was a, a bigger support in Israel for a Palestinian state uh, 30 years ago, 27 years ago, the answer is no. And you remember it. The, Israel was totally against the Palestinian state. That changed in 93. And, and so I'm not giving up on the idea that things will change. And Netanyahu, as you see, is not very strong. I mean, his victory, so-called, is his ability to prevent another government and to drag a caretaker government for almost uh, three years. This is what he's doing all the time. Do you still, believe in, a, do you still believe in a peace process? Do you still believe in a two-state solution? I, I don't have a better solution than a two-state solution. But if it is impossible, and if there is a government in Israel which is ready for partition, while the Palestinian side, whatever it is, whichever it is, is against it, then the only solution would be a unilateral withdrawal, like what we, we did in, in Gaza. It's bad. It's aching. It is very expensive in blood and treasure. But we will not have another, another solution if we want Israel to be a democratic and Jewish state. Why can you not go back to the peace table to begin negotiations with the PLO, which is more, more secular, more moderate, strengthen Abu Mazen's side in the West Bank, and, and again, go back to the deal that maybe Yasser Arafat wouldn't sign before, which is access to the holy site of Jerusalem, the some discussion of right of return, a real Palestinian state in terms of geography. Why won't it work this time? Dana, we have the solution. You know that we have the solution. It is the, the Clinton parameters. It is the Geneva Initiative. I mean, it is in details. It is not all the talks between Olmert and, and Abbas. I mean, or, or the talks with, uh, with Secretary Kerry in, in, in 2013-14. The solution is there. We are not going to, in, to now invent the, uh, the wheel. We know what will happen in Jerusalem about the Arab neighborhoods and the Jewish neighborhoods. We know what will happen on the Temple Mount, that the Temple Mount will be under the Palestinian state and, and the Wailing Wall will be under Israel. I mean, we know what will be with water, with the... With the, the Uh, with environment, with uh, and other resources, with, with the, with the uh, I mean, we have the map in such details that we can just implement it tomorrow. The point is not that we need the solution necessarily, although I believe personally that the best way to get to such a solution is through an Israeli-Palestinian confederation. And, and this is the, the new so-called new component that I'm adding to the formula. But generally, I mean, they need it and we need it and we will have it. We will have it. Eventually we will have it. What is the But Israeli-Palestinian Confederation? No, I'm, I'm for, for the, one of the most important thing, uh, things for the, for the Palestinians is the access to Israel to the Israeli market, to the Israeli universities, to the Israeli high-tech. And of course, if it is a confederation, it, it is not a one-state solution, but uh, th th there is accessibility, which is bigger. And uh, they can benefit, and they say so, I mean, not necessarily openly, but they say so, that they can benefit a lot from, uh, from Israel. And, uh, and I think that for Israel, it is very, very important, among other things, 
to keep those uh, settlers who would uh, prefer to remain in the Palestinian state as Israeli citizens and Palestinian residents where they are. In, 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 a, in a confederation, it is easier. And the same goes also for the issue of the refugees, of the Palestinian refugees. When the, the right of return is to the greater confederation rather than necessarily to their homes, which have been already destroyed in the last uh, 70 odd years. So I, I believe that, that another government will eventually uh, do that. Although the problem of Hamas is a problem. I mean, I, I'm not uh, uh, dismissing the, the issue of Hamas. It was easier for me to say these things before Hamas took over. Because I need a partner who wants something for me. It might be even offensive, or at least very difficult for me to compromise on. But at least you say to me, okay, this is the price that I need in order to make peace with you. Let's argue about it. If somebody comes to me and, say, and says, what do you want? I'm not going to, to sell my, my car. Now let's negotiate. <laughs> I mean, about what? So Hamas is something I admit I don't have a simple answer uh, uh, to this. And I hope that the, the Arab world will help us, especially against the background of the normalization and whatever, to deal with the issue of, of, uh, of Hamas. Could you, example, go forward, could you go forward with the peace process in the West Bank with the PLO? Yes. And leave Gaza... Not, I, I don't want, maybe the popularity of Hamas, rather than being bolstered, which it just was probably in the last two weeks with this fighting, maybe the, yes, that would, yeah. it would be diminished and eventually there would be a more moderate faction in Gaza. I mean, I, I don't know. What I'm saying is that I, I don't want Hamas to have the, the veto power over peace with the Palestinians. So my idea is to sign a peace agreement with the Palestinians, according to the lines that we talked about before, and say to, to the Gazians, you are welcome to join. When you join, then there will be a safe passage between the West Bank and Gaza, as you were promised, and things like that. But as long as you don't recognize the Oslo process, and you don't, you, of course, you don't recognize Israel, uh, it will be only peace uh, implement uh, the, imp the peace will be implemented only on the West Bank, and we will be ready to wait for you. But I admit that it is not uh, the ideal answer. Can you tell me when you think back to after the Israelis um, redeployed out of you know Jericho and Ramallah and Hebron to an extent in Hebron? Um, Arafat came under pressure because of the attacks in Israel that were launched by Hamas and Islamic Jihad and some of the suicide bombings to take Hamas under control in Gaza. And he started to jail them, some of them. Um, and he, he had to show his partner, which was Israel, that he was able to control the violence. He, he started to. Uh, and then what happened? Well, that, was, that happened in '96 before the Israeli elections. And then when Netanyahu came to power, after promising the whole world that he will not, that he will not uh, implement the, the Oslo agreement, but, and then saying, I will implement it in my way. And his way was to actually thwart it. Then, then ch things changed. I mean, if you ask me, who actually prevented the implementation of Oslo, namely getting to a permanent agreement by May the 4th, 1999. My answer will be that it is both the Palestinians and the Israelis, but if you push me to the corner and say, say one name, it will be Netanyahu. Isn't that tragic that he has had this tremendous footprint on the conflict um, and when he said that, you know, we will not be able to turn the clock back on the peace process, it's exactly what he did do. Yeah, he did it. And uh, it is a tragedy. But, you know, I maybe it is also a, a matter of age. I'm not ready to, to accept it, that uh, it is irreversible. Because 
not because of of uh, a belief in in, in uh, destiny, but because this is the real interest of both peoples. Nobody is doing a favor to the other. And I mean, since ever, since ever, partition was the only solution. Whether it, it will be a two-state solution under an umbrella of a confederation, whether it will be a, a Jordanian-Palestinian confederation or federation, as, as you remember, that was one of the main, main ideas in the 80s, at least, uh, or, or something else. This is another question. I, I cannot say that it is only the two-state solution. It, again, I mean, I, I think that if, if there is no partner for Israel to... to uh, the, the minimum demands of, of an Israeli moderate government, then it will be a unilateral uh, step, which is, which is very bad, but better than the current situation. What would prevent the West Bank from being used as Gaza was just used, where it slowly is taken over by extreme elements, and then they just, it has just become another launch pad uh, for attacks on on Israel, what would stop that? And how do you convince Israelis uh, that they could give up or withdraw unilaterally from that land, or with a deal from that land, and that they would be safe? It's a well, big I, I don't want. I'm not there, and I don't, I don't want to to convince them to uh, to withdraw unilaterally because, as I said, it is not a good solution. But we are much stronger than the other side, and uh, if there there are attempts like that, they they will be uh, met. And our main issue is not the security vis-a-vis the Palestinians. It is a big problem, but this is not the, ba- the biggest problem. Our main issue is Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. And if this, this doesn't prevail, God forbid, then what are we going, doing here? It is not the security if, if we speak about the Palestinians. If it is with Iran or something like that, then it is another story. But with, with the Palestinians, I mean, people on, on the right said, what happens if they shoot uh, missiles on the airport? So they did it already. I mean, we can handle, we can handle things. So when but, you talk about but, the being challenged, the big challenge being Israel being a democratic state, are you talking about the Arab Israelis? The Arab Israelis are part of Israel. I mean, yes. they are, yeah. And they should be but, but people are fighting right now, as you know. Uh, there is fighting in the streets between Jews and, and Arab Israelis. I mean, it's quite. Well, I, I hope that uh, it is over. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I hope that it is over. There were two nights like that, and uh, that was frightening for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we understand that it is not, Israel is not a melting pot even if we are deceiving ourselves from time to time. We are not. Uh, and and uh, we, we are different groups here. And there are animosities with the ultra-religious people, with the Arabs, with the, the, the Sephardi Jews and the Ashkenazi Jews. And usually it is okay and quiet and, and it is a very interesting country and people are optimistic and whatever. And suddenly, because of whatever, you have an explosion. And then you say, how come my neighbors, we were in good relations, and suddenly they are shooting or, or, or beating or, or shouting against me or, or whatever. It's not the first time in human history. And the wisdom of, of the leadership is to say, okay, okay, we know that there is a problem. We know that actually you can live together. Let us somehow stitch the patches and, and, and live together as we did in the past. It happened, you know, in 2000 with, with the second Intifada, which was really awful and for no reason. There was no reason for the Palestinians to launch an Intifada in 2000. We were in the midst of negotiations with them on the most difficult issues for both sides. And it did happen without a trigger and created animosity among the Israeli Arabs and, and the Israeli Jews. 
and between us and the Palestinians and with the Arab world and our neighbors uh, called back their ambassadors, Egypt and, and, and Jordan and whatever. And then it came back to, to uh, something uh, much more normal. And we even had the, now the relations with the Gulf states. So it, it is, I, I cannot say that uh, what, ha- what happened between us, us Jewish uh, Israelis and Arab Israelis is uh, something that cannot be, uh, that, that we cannot mend fences. We, we can uh, mend fences and we know how to do that. The, the big thing is whether and, and, and when we can really solve the problem. And our problem is not unique and we know the solution. And what we need is strong leaderships on both sides. I, I believe that Abu Mazen, President Mahmoud Abbas is committed to peace, but I also know that he is very weak. And that, I mean, if you are weak, then your wishes are not enough. And I know that on our side, Netanyahu is not ready anymore for the partition of the land, meaning that he's not ready for to stay solution. So as we speak, it is very difficult, but I, I'm not going to give up and I'm not sure whether it will not change in, in, in two weeks from now. Can I ask you how, when you look back on your secret negotiations that took place in Oslo, it was a crime then in Israel to go and talk to the PLO if you were, I think if you were a reporter, as a journalist even, um, you could be charged if you talked to the PLO. You, you went and you had this vision um, not alone, but with many people, about a way forward. What what do you think your legacy is now when you when you look back? We, do you think that eventually that plan, Oslo, uh, will be seen to have been the future, regardless of how long it took to get there? Um, or is it just a bruising chapter? First of all, I never broke the law. We began our talks on January the 20th, ninety three. While not you, they, not you. I was just setting. I was no, setting no. the scene. The people that that I sent to to uh, Norway, they began it on the twentieth of of January, a day after we changed the law, and the one who who brought the bill to the Knesset was me, so that we, it was not breaching the law uh, uh, to talk to the PLO. And had it not passed, because it was a very small majority, we wouldn't have uh, begun the talks. Uh, so, so since it was my idea, I can tell you, it was very, very important for me not to be accused of breaching the law. And uh, if you ask me, I mean, Oslo was was a small step. It was actually we we were trying through Oslo to. Uh, implement the the Camp David idea of Begin and Sadat about a, a, an autonomy for five years, which was a bad idea, I mean, in my view. But we were committed to it. That was the Madrid conference um, basis. And uh, when I suggested to Rabin to go immediately for a permanent agreement, he refused to it because he thought that going in the footsteps of Begin will help him, which didn't. But this was his, his, uh, his idea. And he said also that if, if we uh, try an, a permanent agreement and fail, the Palestinians will not be ready later on to have with us even an interim agreement, since they will say, now that we know your permanent ideas, why should we go to, with you to a corridor, a corridor which would lead to a solution that we cannot accept? Right. So this was, for people that don't know, this was a five-year implementation process with Oslo where a lot of the details of where the border was and what the territory would be was not set out in concrete, but it, it was the beginning of that discussion and an agreement to yeah. have a peace and then go forward and negotiate that. So, so what was the, the important thing? What, what made Oslo a kind of a milestone? There were two things. One was the mutual recognition of the two national movements, 
after so many years, we recognized each other, the PLO and, and the, the Zionist movement or Israel as a state. And the second one, that physically we, we enabled the Palestinians to come to the West Bank and to Gaza and to establish a kind of, of a, a, a proto-state or whatever you call it, uh, to prepare for for the uh, for the entity because we did not agree on the Palestinian state yet, uh, and these were the two the two things. But the the most important thing was the, the permanent agreement, and that we never achieved. But you believe? Last word to you. Do you believe we will get there at some point? That Israel and the Palestinians will get there, or do you think? First of all, I I believe that we we should we will get there, but I'm not sure about it. What I'm saying is that we have to partition the land, and if we don't have a permanent agreement, we should do it ourselves. That's it. Because I, I mean, if I I'm telling you we will have an agreement eventually, it's a wishful thinking. I don't know what will happen in the in Israel in the next elections. And I don't know what will happen in, in, in Palestine. So what I can say is that whoever is leading Israel and is a Zionist will not be able to continue the status quo because if it is not a Jewish state, but a, a state with a, a Palestinian major, a majority, then the, the Zionist dream collapses. So partition the state, give them some land, either through negotiation or unilaterally. Exactly, exactly. And even I, if I agree with you that a unilateral partition may be very costly. Dangerous. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Balin, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Thank you. All right, Anna Ehrenheim uh, is a military reporter for the Jerusalem Post. She received an MA in counterterrorism and homeland security. I mentioned that because I think it's incredibly impressive. And Anna joins us from Jerusalem. Hi, Anna. Hi, how are you? You are in Jerusalem, right? I'm in Rishon, a little bit between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, but uh, right now actually sitting in my bomb shelter, working in my bomb shelter. Is that a normal thing for you to do? I mean, usually I'm out in, in coffee shops working, it's, uh, but right now with the situation, it's just easier to be at home. Has this campaign been as successful as the, the Israeli military uh, claims that it has been? I mean, there's been a lot of civilians killed. There's been international fury at Israel right now is off the charts. I don't know whether you see that inside Israel, the way people see it outside of Israel. So there's a price to be paid for this military campaign and this conflict. But have they succeeded uh, where they claim that they did in dismantling a lot of Hamas and the, the tunnels, et cetera? Well, I think if you want to compare it to previous conflicts, for example, in 2014, Operation Protective Edge, which lasted 50 days and saw thousands of uh, Palestinians killed and hundreds of Israelis um, civilians and soldiers being injured and killed as well. Um, if you look now within the 10 days, um, Israel has been able to target and take out a lot of Hamas infrastructure, damage a good amount of their tunnels, if not destroy their tunnel system. Um, Israel dubbed it the metro, uh, the metro network. Um, and they say there are hundreds of kilometers of tunnels um, that were taken out by, air, by airstrikes. Um, and if, I mean, looking at the casualty count, unfortunately, in every war, there will be casualties and there will be um, non-combatants, including women and children and the elderly um, being killed. That's the nature of war, no matter how you look at it and how uh, precise you want to be with your munitions. But if you look at the damage that was caused by Israel with their munitions, you have to say, well, the, the casualty count is relatively low. Um, there's over 200 Palestinians that were killed, the majority of them being men. Um, yes, there are 
unfortunately, 63 uh, children that have been killed, over 37 women. And those are numbers which, you know, you, you can't hide and, and you can't say, well, that's nothing. No, that that's something. That's a disaster. That's unfortunately unacceptable. But like I said before, it's war. Um, but I do think that Israel has uh, well, you're, succeeded. You're saying, it's, you're saying it's unacceptable. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to take you to, to task on, on it one way or the other, but the military would say it's acceptable because they feel of, that of course. those are of accept, course. acceptable people that got caught in the crossfire and what was a unnecessary military campaign. But I guess when you talk about acceptability, you have to say, okay, short-term goal is to dismantle tunnels and kill Hamas leaders. But and- that's not their short-term goal. Destroying their tunnel network is actually a long-term goal of theirs for in a future conflict, they, they won't there? have to go in and maneuver to destroy their tunnels. That's what the military is saying, that how this is not a there? short-term goal. My question, my question is, how was this a massive failure in Israeli intelligence? I doubt it. So they must have known that they were there. They must have known that they were building them. They must have known that Hamas was slowly gaining capability. Why did they let it go so long? I mean, that that definitely a question to be asked. Um, it wasn't a, a failure per se of um, military intelligence to let this go on. Um, what I think is a failure was them saying, well, we knew Hamas was going to attack Jerusalem and we let the, the tensions grow and the flames grow even higher. And then they fired the rockets, which led us into this conflict. I think what Israel has, and, and this is what they, they've said in, in, in many uh, briefings, is that we took the calculated risk for them to build these tunnel systems, knowing that we had the plans and the intelligence to pretty much x-ray the Gazan underground and know where exactly to hit, how to hit. We had the munitions uh, prepared and ready where to hit. So I think, you know, it doesn't take two seconds to to gather this intelligence and to really map out uh, the plans of your targets. It also doesn't take two seconds to strike a target. It takes, you know, hours. Um, But I I do think that there are many issues in terms of the Israeli military and their targets. Do you think that Uh, they knew Hamas had the ability to fire those volleys of of rockets as quickly as they could? And in the numbers, they did over 3,000 rockets? Over 4,000 rockets now. Over four now. Um, and, And probably by the end of the day, four and a half. Who knows? Um, military officials have said they were surprised at the intensity of barrages towards Ashkelon. And Ashkelon sits right on the border and a good amount of people, I think 25% of people, don't have access to bomb shelters. Um, so they were very surprised at that. Were they surprised that they were launching towards Tel Aviv? No. They know that they have over a thousand rockets which can hit Tel Aviv. They know they have the ability to send them in you know, large barrages of 100 uh, rockets or more. Mm-hmm. Um, this they know, and that's why they had the Iron Dome system set up uh, in the Gushdan area that's the center of Israel. They had them set up before um, this last round even broke out. Did Netanyahu do this? Fuel, <laughs> fuel settlement expansion, uh, back the court case for the settlement seizure in Jerusalem, jumped at the chance to go after Hamas, it seems, for political rescue. That's a question that many people are asking. Um, I don't think that he uh, took this opportunity to, to save his, his seat and to continue to be prime minister of Israel. Um, the timing is the timing is suspicious. Um, but I mean, what he he worked with Hamas to fire rockets on, on Jerusalem. That that to me is a little bit far fetched. Um, I do think that he is uh, taking this opportunity, though, um, because let's be let's be fair. OK. You fire rockets on the capital of a country, that country is going to respond. It's going to respond heavily, um, no matter which country that happens happens to. Um, I do think overall, though, that it is a great coincidence um, that this is happening when Yair Lapid has only two weeks left in order to form a mandate. Hopefully this will be over soon um, and people will forget about it like Israel, like people have forgotten about the Mount Maron tragedy that happened two but, weeks but ago. But Netanyahu harvests political support from this, does he? Do you think it will save him? I don't think it's only this uh, where he's harvesting political support. I mean, the, the riots on the street in Israel, it's more worrisome to the everyday Israeli than what's happening with Gaza. And I think that's really uh, what could save him, and um, what could lead this country to another election, not what's happening with Gaza. 
Because what happens with Gaza, unfortunately, happens every year. People vote for Netanyahu in the South, no matter the fact that they have hundreds of rockets raining down on them for the past 20 years. They vote for him. But what we're seeing on the streets is a completely different type of war that, if not taken under control and really stopped, and that is what could save him. You're talking about fighting between Arab Israelis and, and Jewish Israelis that have been quite shocking in some centers. Yeah. Yeah. And we saw just the other day the first fatality of a man who actually spent his whole life trying to, to bring communities together. And he worked with at-risk youth and he was lynched in Lod and he died. And he was the first fatality. So why does Netanyahu continue to court the extreme? And you can you can say, Dana, that's not fair if you want to. But he, in some ways, has had a very comfortable relationship with maybe uncomfortable relationship at times with Hamas, rather than strengthening Fatah and PLO and mainstream elements in the West Bank, some would argue. Um, He has brought in to his coalition or attempted to marry some pretty extreme elements. I mean, there are members of Kahana that I understand are in government now. I mean, that shocks me. Yeah, but does it shock you that he was also trying to bring in Ram, an Islamist party, into his government as well? I mean, he's going to, you know, take whatever he can in order to stay in power. Uh, yes, he has been. Um, he's always used very inflammatory sentences uh, to, you know, grab the the far right in Israel, um, be it the Kahanists or, or be it just the everyday people um, that consider themselves Likud and, and far right. Um, but at the same time, I do think there was a good amount of uh, support. Um, for the change party, the change coalition, where people were saying enough is enough. You know, how many years has he been in power? And and why are we not seeing any change in this country and anything coming out of of his government? So does that lead us now in the wake of, you know, when the dust settles from this latest conflict, this latest round? And honestly, Anna, I'm not there. and, And I feel like I've covered it. I've covered the spark on Temple Mount before. I've covered the the conflict in Gaza. I understand each time there are elements that are different, but there is so much that's the same. And every time it seems just to move radically further to the right, it, it doesn't seem to have a solution to it. And everybody says, okay, this should provide impetus for a new discussion about a peace process that everybody says doesn't exist, but needs to. Do you think coming out of this, there is re-emergence, if not in Israel, certainly on the international side with American backing of this two-state discussion again, um, and and that the, the sides need to come to some kind of political discussion at the table to end the cycle of violence? Well, I think that it's not only the two sides, you have to bring in the three sides uh, like you said before, the PLO, Fatah, and, and the West Bank, because that is completely separate from, from Gaza. And the, the elections that were canceled very likely would have seen Mahmoud Abbas and Fatah lose um, their rule over the West Bank. And Hamas would have very much, uh, very probably gained and, and gone into power. And, um, I and do... A lot of people, I mean, you and I know because we've covered the story, but a lot of people don't understand outside of Israel in the West Bank, and that Fatah is generally pretty secular and fairly it liberal. And depends and, on when you look at Fatah, but compared to Hamas, yes. Yeah. Um, but at the I mean, same time, they are the party. If you were going to have a, if you if you're going to choose to have a discussion in Western terms with a party to sit down and say, what do you want, and be able to maybe come to terms with them, Fatah is your best bet compared to Hamas, which you probably. Definitely. Who knows what they want except the destruction of Israel? Definitely. Um, I mean, Hamas threw Fatah members off roofs when when they, you know, took power in 2007 in Gaza. I mean, I you have pictures of, of awful pictures out of Gaza at that time, and and Hamas unfortunately hasn't really changed um, since then. But I do think that you can't only look at Israel as being um, the main problem. You also have to look at, at Hamas. You know, it takes to Tango, or and you know, right now pushing uh, Hama, uh, Fatah to the side. Right now, it takes two to tango, and 
right now Israel is not ready to come to the table, just like Hamas is not really ready to come to the table. Well, Israel either. may be able to, may be willing to come to the table. Netanyahu's not willing to come to the table. Right, right now he's not ready to come to the table. But I'm talking overall. Mm-hmm. The two sides don't want to talk to each other, right? They have mediation with with the U.S. and Egypt, and you know, in different rooms, and but they're not going to sit at the same table together. Neither party. And in order for a real change to happen, in order for really this cycle of violence, which we see on a, you know, every single year, they have to sit down. They have to open the doors and say, okay, we're going to look you face to face. And maybe it doesn't have to be Hanea and Bibi, but just, you know, representatives sitting down and looking at each other. Because if you can't look at each other, how are you going to make an agreement and, and stop this violence? So almost 30 years after the Oslo Accords, um, when one of the prime architects of that, Yossi Balin, um, who was in the labor government under Yitzhak Rabin, brought home those accords. And then there was a peace process which didn't spell out a lot of things in terms of what the territory would look like and how you would resolve all these different issues from Jerusalem to borders to whether they'd be armed, right of return, all of that stuff. Balin said to me in our interview, and I was really surprised, he said, no doubt there will be a Palestinian state that, and that doesn't shock me so much, but he said, we will either come to it through peace negotiations or withdrawal. Just simple Israel at some point is going to withdraw, which will be a mess and it will be very hard. But he said, inevitably, you know, you can delay it another decade, but that's where this will end up. What do you think of that? What do you think most Israelis would say about that? Most Israelis would say, look at Gaza. We unilaterally withdrew of Gaza and and what happened? I think that's what the majority of Israelis would say. Um, There was a lot of talk earlier this year Maybe it was last year. I can't even keep anything straight anymore about, you know, annexation. It's got so many layers. The story changes so much, but we we seem to go around to the same starting points again. But go ahead. Exactly. You know, the talk about annexation when, when President Trump was in office and that was a big issue and people were really worried that that would bring about another intifada. Um, we didn't see that happen, but I do think that the talk of uh, withdrawing from the West Bank is something that is very, very, very um, what, what's the proper word? It, it's a tipping point for many Israelis and for many government officials that I don't think are ready to, they're not ready to take that step. I don't think that even Yair Lapid would be ready to take that step. Um, I do think that right now, the what's, what's happening in Gaza, so fresh in everyone's mind, um, they're just going to say, why are we going to allow that to happen in, in the West Bank as well, and we'll get and get it from two sides. I do think that if we're able to, to bring Gaza and Israel to an understanding and we don't see a rebuild of Hamas's and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, because that, again, is a group that not many people are talking about, but it's just as big of a player as Hamas, especially now in this round. The Islamic um, Jihad. Yeah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. If we don't bring those two groups to the understanding that they can't be firing their their rockets and mortars to civilian um, cities, if that's not taken care of first, we can't even talk about well, uh, withdrawing may, from the West Bank. You may you may do discuss the West Bank and leave Gaza because it's just a more complicated problem and and requires maybe a different solution. But I'm but I'm saying Israelis won't be ready to talk about the West Bank if they don't see Gaza being fixed first because think- they. I get you. Yeah. Yeah. They they see really that the, that the withdrawal in in 2005 just made the situation worse. In Gaza. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some people would say it's better because how, how simply that Israeli soldiers were not being ambushed nightly as they did their patrols through the Gaza Strip and settlements were not being attacked. And at least now you, you, you have a berm and you attack Gaza from the outside. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good situation, but it's a controllable situation. Um, I mean, if, if controllable means you have hundreds of rockets 
and mortars being fired towards Israeli settlements and, and, you know, IDF troops being attacked on the border or being kidnapped through a tunnel. And, you know, we can go on and on and on about what's happened since 2005. I mean, yes, Israeli soldiers aren't being attacked and killed and Israeli civilians aren't being attacked and killed inside Israel. I agree with you, but I I don't think Israel ever left Gaza thinking that there was going to be some kind of utopian, uh, you know, peaceful dream on the other side of the fence the next day. They simply wanted to get the hell out that they they, they didn't feel that they could secure it anymore and better to be dealing with it from the outside than on the inside. And then, of course, you know, you had Hamas overtake the, the PLO there. So that was yeah. complicated. Whereas in the West Bank, Israel does feel like it can control the situation. It can control and um, uh, w- working again with the, with the Palestinian security forces stop a lot of attacks. So I think the West Bank, again, is a completely different, just as complicated, but completely different uh, situation. All right. So it sounds like, just to wrap up with you, it doesn't. It sounds like in the minds of a lot of Israelis, the way you read them, is that you don't see any impetus for a new peace process out of this. Th- that really, it's just another stalemate, and we'll be we'll be doing this in another three years or five years. We'll be holding the same conversation about the same conflict that begins maybe on the next round of the Temple Mount at the end of Eid, and here we go again in Gaza and the West Bank. That's pretty dark. It is, and and I think that if you know, the diplomatic angle doesn't come up and say, okay, well, this is a ceasefire that both sides have to adhere to, a ceasefire which calls for Hamas to not rearm itself, but to really focus um, all the aid that was going into the Gaza Strip onto the civilian population, and for Israel to say, okay, well, we're not going to, you know, strike just because we feel like it, or both sides have to agree that what happened before is not going to happen again. Is that going to happen? And then I'm shaking my head because <laughs> I'm nodding. That sounds good. And I'm but it's not going to happen because fat chance Hamas is not going to do that. And you, you know it and I know it. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate. But I mean, I, I was talking to um, a retired military uh, officer just shortly before we, we were having this conversation. He's like, ceasefires aren't worth the paper that they're signed on for Hamas. They're going to break it. There has to be something new. What that's going to be, it's not up to the military. It's up to the political echelon to, to deal with. And you have a stale political echelon that probably doesn't have much of a vision right now. Sorry. It, it can't even make its own government. Anna Ehrenheim, <laughs> it's great to finally talk to you. And you as well. I can say I was chasing Anna for about five days now, but she's been all over the country covering the, the conflict and... Uh, but at least we caught her in a bomb shelter. So that's great. <laughs> a comfortable bomb shelter. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Take care. And that's our backstory on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The only way you can understand this is not to see one side or the other as the victim. Understand they both torque the facts to the extreme to suit their demonization of the other. I think Yossi Balin is right. The international community needs to help and push both Jews and Arabs to solve this. They will never get there by themselves, but probably only after Netanyahu leaves the Prime Minister's office. He has blocked peace at every turn. I'm Dana Lewis. Thanks for listening to Backstory, and subscribe so you get all our podcasts. And I'll talk to you again soon.